So I'm not going to be talking about the policy implications of of Tuesday. Um, obviously, from a personal perspective, I feel that uh, it was a disaster. Um, I am old enough, I must admit, to have experienced the change that happened when the Carter administration, yes, I was alive then, switched to the Reagan. So I know what it's like when you have uh, a really dispiriting uh, negative turn of events. Um, and there will be, uh, without doubt, um, a lot of pending um, legislation and policy decisions that will deeply negatively affect so many already historically uh, marginalized and abused communities, including, uh, but not limited to, oh, people of color, women, LGBTQ, disabled, and pretty much anybody who's ever been abused at any point in their life will be triggered by this. So just a small amount of people will be negatively affected. Um, fortunately, one thing that the 80s and 90s, when I was at my most uh, activist, showed me that, um, uh, of course, banding together and nonviolent but direct action uh, has almost invariably always produced uh, amazing results and can forestall some of the most draconian and horrific attempts to deprive people of their rights and safety. Um, in the 1980s, I was, I was first brought into activism by the anti-apartheid movement, uh, very much active in the people in solidarity with the people of El Salvador, and we did a lot of direct action, and it was really beneficial. So there's uh, no limit to what gathering and um, direct action can accomplish. I do believe, I'm hoping, that the leadership of the, this upcoming movement will be from people and communities that are going to be the most affected, women of color, people of the LGBTQ communities, the disabled. I don't think it should be a white guy with tattoos. Uh, I will be there with you, hopefully, uh, following their lead. Uh, but I'm hoping that uh, we can have a new direction where people, where we learn to give respect and we learn to rally around uh, individuals who come from those communities. There's just been too many attempts by white guys to try to fix and solve everything. So, putting that um, aside, I'm going to be talking about things that I am, I think, more uh, right now qualified to discuss, which is the psychological and spiritual implications of um, Tuesday. Uh, psychological being the individual reactions that we have to negative events based on our own personal life experiences. And spiritual are the universal, transpersonal 
uh, non-materialist perspectives on how we can create meaning and the sense of purpose in life no matter what has happened. From a psychological perspective, given that a lot of my work is doing one-on-one -on -one with individuals, um, the exposure to threats that have already happened by having people like Mike Pence, who is one of the most dangerous individuals uh, for the LGBTQ community, and Donald Trump, who is one of, who is a non-repentant, abusive, horrific, bigoted human being, having those people being put in power is already going to create dangerous situations for people in daily interactions. We've already heard of massive events, uh, or a number of events, race and uh, LGBTQ crime happening since the election. Then there's the triggering of people who've had any traumatic experience in their life. When somebody who is a is abusive, um, violent, aggressive, bullying, is essentially put in charge of the country. For many of us, it's like the bad dream of having the abusive figure reified and put in charge of the world. <laughs> and it makes the world feel like it's a very unsafe space. I grew up myself in a family where my dad was, a when he drank, an extremely violent, hulking, large, red-faced figure that would beat at my mom, create all kinds of situations where the police were called in. And so, 10 years of therapy to address the wounds. And even after that amount of work, I still felt triggered on Wednesday. I still felt like I'd been, I woke up and I literally felt like, that feeling of being kicked in the stomach, this tightness in the throat, this feeling of just a real deep embodied sense of not being safe. So I cannot even, I don't want to and in any way pretend that I can speak for the experience of people of color and women and members of the LGBTQ community and disabled, but I can only imagine what they might have felt given this event. So there's that, there's the triggering on top of it is, unfortunately, when we go through catastrophic events uh, in the world, there's this natural tendency that people have to try to turn it into meaning, try to figure out what it means, and so they flock around television sets and they turn on the news. And unfortunately, the news in a capitalist society is sensationalized, emotionalized. It emphasizes almost invariably the negative outcomes, no matter how at sometimes even at times even low the risks uh, to the extent that the Harvard School of Public Health showed that the more TV news people watch, the more anxious and depressed they become. It doesn't matter what's going on in the world. <laughs> so imagine if real crap is going on in the world. What watching? In fact, there was a study by the University of California that found that people who watch five or more hours of news respond to events with more stress than people who are actually directly affected by the events. <laughs> I'll put that so if you were like me in front of 9-11 and saw it happen with your own two eyes, but I fortunately by that point knew not to rush home and watch the images over and over and over again, but those that spent five hours actually on the news actually probably activated themselves and triggered themselves if they had 
early trauma uh, far more. So my solution is I don't believe that you just don't watch the news. I tend to, and I'm not, this is not an endorsement. I'm not getting paid by the BBC. I just watch <laughs> BBC America. Their news is a little boring, but there's not this little ticker tape going, it's the end of the world, by the way. <laughs> Every, you know, news, horrific car crash, tyrants everywhere, possible nuclear situation going on all the time. I just don't do it. And I found that I find that I maybe I'm flattering myself, but I do seem to be able to keep my own end up in conversations about worldly events and about events that affect us all. So I don't think that to be responsible about how much you willingly self-trigger yourself, that there's anything wrong with being smart about how much and where you get your information from. I personally can't watch more than a half an hour of American media before literally starting to feel my stomach tighten and I just start to, this defended posture comes in. It, for some, it just doesn't happen with uh, watching like BBC or reading The Guardian. I don't know, maybe it's the accent, right? Maybe there's something like a British accent that says they've been around for thousands of years, so we're pretty safe because they're still British people. <laughs> I don't know what it is. So there's those very real psychological implications. But then on top of it, there's the spiritual uh, implications. The spiritual are the non-personal uh, ways we approach events like this that help us make meaning from it and help us find safety or understanding. Um, in this event, this event really, uh, I think, validates one of the Buddha's core messages, which, and I'm just going to put it in its most blunt form, which is the world has always been a shitty place, <laughs> and it always will be. The Buddha said in the Atadanda Sutta, I looked at the world, and this is what I saw, people struggling and competing like fish flopping about in a drying puddle of water, and it was terrifying. The world has never been safe. It never will be. In every direction there is turmoil. Contention will always be the direction that the world is heading in. He said that 2,500 years ago. So, of course, it would be nice to believe that for we take 26 steps forward, but in my experience that means we take 25 steps backwards, and we don't really get anywhere very quickly. And the mind state that can elect a neo-Nazi, in essence, to high office, has always been in place. We've never been a country that has had any other mind state uh, as the dominant mode. Um, I'm not saying that everybody who voted for Trump was in any way a bigot or racist. I just believe people who voted for him just wanted change. They just saw him as change. The fact that people were willing to vote that way and didn't consider the health and welfare of other communities means that people deep down the side haven't progressed in addressing the core mind state of me first thinking, damn, the effects to other people. So um, in the Ratapala Sutta, the Dharma is summarized to a king as follows in four simple statements. The world is unstable and everything will be swept away. There is no such thing as shelter in the world, and no one can protect you. <laughs> Nothing in this world can be owned. In death, you'll leave it all behind. And 
there's nothing in this world that can satisfy a craving mind. So, essentially, the message is very clear that the materialistic idea of trying to accumulate or amass safety in the world through money, through financial wealth, through um, achieving a great career with a good reputation, all those things that are essentially materialist, um, will not be the solution. But the Buddha is not saying by any means that there isn't safety or a feeling of security that's available. One thing that's very clear is that safety and a feeling of security is available because these are largely states of mind in many ways. Yes, people can be actually unsafe in, in what we would call conventional reality, but most of the time, the way we feel safe and secure and where we act from that state is largely a felt emotional response rather than an actual fact. Somebody can be locked up in a tower in Fifth Avenue near Central Park with the name Trump on it, surrounded by <laughs> guards and uh, with machine guns, and they will not be safe not only from old age, sickness, death, but all kinds of terrible things happen all of the time to any one of us in any place. There's no such a thing as actual physical safety. But So what there is, though, is variations of emotional safety. And emotional safety, uh, as we know from the studies of Kahneman and Seligman and Fredrickson at all, are, is not produced by accumulating wealth or amassing uh, objects or even worrying about how other people uh, think about us and posting a lot of stuff on Facebook. Um, <laughs> that's not to say that Facebook doesn't have its purpose or that other social media doesn't, but that's not where security and peace of mind is found. <laughs> there are, the Buddha said, three sources of feelings of being secure, even in the time of the election of a petty tyrant. <coughs> I'm going to go over them, but I'm not going to go over them in the strict order. The strict order is the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. I'm going to start with Dharma, then Sangha, and then end with Buddha and practice because that's going to lead into the meditation. The second source of security is the Dharma. And the Dharma is essentially the collection of wisdom that has uh, certainly over the last 2,500 years, more I would argue, if we include all the Vedic religions, has been amassed. And if I had to summarize the core wisdom of the Dharma, it's that it is very, very possible to confront aggression, to take right action in the world, and yet at the same time to not cause suffering to other beings. One of the core teachings of, the, of karma, which is the underlying engine to all of Buddhist wisdom, is the profound observation that when we act in ways that intend to cause harm to any other being, we are going to suffer ourselves. This observation has now been actually well documented as having um, a neural basis, which is we all have right hemispheres, and in our right hemispheres we have 
the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex. You don't have to memorize that. There won't be a test. But that part of your brain is hardwired to promote connecting with other people. And not only that, we have the anterior um, ventral medial, which promotes compassion and empathy with other beings suffering. So we have wiring in our brains that punish us from causing, for causing harm and punish us from acting in ways where we believe that we're harming other people in the tribe. So many of us, understandably, will feel the need to try to express to people who are, I would say, on the wrong side of history by voting for Trump, will feel the urge to somehow make them understand or make them feel the pain that we feel or make them in some way uh, belittle or denounce. And in my experience, not only does that not work, I've never met the person who said, okay, I'm going to stop voting for Republicans and start voting for peop other people because you, you've insulted me. And of course, those people do a lot of insulting, but they don't feel better because of it. We all wind up suffering if we act out on antisocial harm intending impulses. On the other hand, the more we act with the intention of either, one, reducing uh, suffering in ourselves or other beings, the more we act from a place of, in some way, uh, compassion, we are, or at least not intending harm, we generally wind up experiencing pro-social emotions and feelings because our brains are wired for it. And if you don't believe me, you can read the book by Matthew Lieberman, or Susan Pinker, where they go over all the evidence, the two books, Social and The Village Effect. I, for my own peace of mind, and I don't necessarily think this is right, I just say that in my own experience, I have found that uh, also in Buddhist wisdom that uh, it's very important for me to learn how to set boundaries to survive in times of deep division socially. Boundaries for me are with certain family members who I suspect... Um, believe in things that I find to be uh, difficult to uh, tolerate uh, or be with and feel uh, to be with and feel comfortable, I draw a boundary, which is I'm not going to talk about this, I'm not going to talk about this topic, and if this topic comes up, I'm going to leave. Uh, so sometimes boundary settings are, I think, especially useful uh, there's no example in the entire Buddhist canon of the Buddha ever trying to persuade somebody to come around to his way of thinking. And he was constantly <coughs> intercepted, confronted, waylaid by people who believed in other spiritual practices and tried to convince him to come around to their way of thinking. And the Buddha never, ever said, no, my way of thinking is right. You should change your mind. He would, when he saw somebody was virulently on a completely different path, he would essentially move on. He'd say, uh, there's nothing to be accomplished here. He didn't get into screaming debates. There's just not a Suda where the Buddha is red-faced with somebody else where they're calling each other Nazis and leftist <laughs> Um 
No matter, uh, well, let me read uh, one sutta or two suttas, Nabalavaga Sutta. If on your journey you meet people on a path, if in your journey you meet people who are on a different path than yours, don't stop to mingle. <laughs> Continue on your course and let them on yours. One gains nothing trying to convince other people. In the Iributaka Sutta, he says, it was a little bit harsher, he says, uh, be careful of who you associate with. If you wrap rotting fish in a blade of grass, it's the grass that starts to smell. So the, you're, you're the grass. <coughs> so it is if you seek out and talk with the foolish. If you wrap incense in a leaf, it makes the leaf less fragrant. So seek out the enlightened. The Buddha here is in no way ever saying turn a cold shoulder or if somebody in your family who's a ardent, uh, avidly pro-Trump calls you up, you just don't pick up the phone. But you either set boundaries or you make it clear that you're not going to talk about uh, your beliefs. Um, security and boundaries by the way are the single thing by the way that separate childhood from adult life in my in many respects children cannot to figures of power in their life say i'm sorry but you can't ask me you can't make me talk about this i'm not going to talk about this this topic is off limits uh one of the great and because children can't set boundaries all of their coping strategies are essentially maladaptive and that they're trying to adapt to situations where they cannot, not all of them, but many of their, their, salute, their coping strategies to manage interactions with adults become based on avoiding, lying, diminishing, presenting what other people want to hear, doing, or doing anything to survive. And as adults, we don't have to do that. We can simply say, I'm not going to talk about this. If you want to talk with me, fine, but I'm not going to talk about this. Now, you might actually love getting into heated debates. If you do, that's your right. I haven't, in my life, found it very useful, but maybe you might find it um, in some way skillful. Security in the Sangha. The right hemisphere of the brain, which can be so easily traumatized by unsafe people, by men who are, uh, let's just say, really unsafe, who remind us of uh, abusive figures in the past, um, it's very difficult, it's our natural inclination to try to figure things out and to turn everything in life into a story, try to figure out what it means and try to uh, come up with just uh, a nice little conceptual bow to make all of the, the feelings go away. And I found that one of the core observations of the <laughs> Dharma is that connecting with other people in a safe space where you don't have to in any way manage yourself or defend yourself or where you feel connected with uh, other people will make us feel less vulnerable, make us feel supported, and that it heals a lot of the really painful negative emotions that can arise when um, shit goes down, to put it in a blunt way. Um, the Buddha talked again and again and again about how connecting with safe people, Kalyanamita, wise, close, tolerant, as he defined them, friends, is the absolute foundation 
of the practice. And there is no such thing as just going alone, sitting on a meditation, and meditating our way uh, through events like this and finding peace and feelings of security if we're not in some way connected with a spiritual community. Um, when we connect with community, it's been found that it activates the secretion of serotonin, oxytocin, vasopressin, which not only is the glue of bonding with other people, but it's the chemicals that allow us to uh, essentially move from being zombies where we just react to being people who have free will, who can choose between a variety of different uh, responses to events. When we are isolated and alone, we don't, not only do we not have regulation, uh, not only are we far more likely to act and think from a guarded, small, uh, protected space, but we will be less able to stop, pause, think things through, create, co-create meaning through dialogue with other people. In my experience, there is no such thing as a valid interpretation of painful experiences that comes up in entire isolation. All valid interpretations take time. They require emotions to be felt and they require bouncing our entire our interpretations and our ideas off of others. There's nothing in I can there's no possible way that I could uh, overemphasize the um, importance of bonding with a community. It's awkward. We're all, we all have early experiences in our life where we remember being um, <clears throat> bullied by other groups, feeling not included. So going to a space, connecting with other people, finding a community um, feels risky and vulnerable. And as adults, we're sort of used to having a lot of our friendships provided for us by workplaces or just by the people who happen to live nearby or by who's at the same bar or whatever, however adults make friends. I've now, for a long time, made my friends through community. And I found those are the most beneficial friendships. Um, I really encourage that. And fortunately, there's a lot of communities to choose from. You're not... I would be the last person ever to say that the only community to, to, to go to would be a Buddhist community. You could bond in a yoga center, in a Quaker community. You could bond in a 12-step group. You can feel safe in so many different spaces with so many different types of people. There is no valid community more valid than any other, I should say. So any community where you can go on a regular basis and have that emotional feeling of sitting with other people and being a part of something, that will so deeply resonate and create feelings of, of, uh, of a sense of security in your brain. There's no replacement for it. So the third is security in spiritual practice. This is going to lead to the meditation. There, we could break it down, spiritual, the benefits of spiritual practice into three uh, kinds of groups. One, in spiritual practice, we're reinforcing the fact that we cannot acquire peace of mind or safety. 
we're also deeply embedding the wisdom that there's nothing that we need because it's already available. Peace of mind and feelings of security are states of mind, and they come from not trying to fortify oneself or build a bunker, although I certainly can understand that impulse at times, but it actually comes from uh, turning away from all of the neural mental habits that we have that can make these times even more dangerous and even more insecure than they actually are. The first way that the, we do that is by catastrophizing. I mean, things are bad enough, right? <laughs> but right now, the need to spin out what will, the, what will be like in the first 100 days, that's not happening right now. Uh, of course, it sounds very Buddhisty to say, you know, the present is a great teacher and, you know, return to the present because... But there is some truth to it in the sense that so much of uh, suffering that is added on in life doesn't come only from actual threats, actual emotions that are happening, but from that the mind's tendency to try to prepare for the future by presenting or creating a story and we feel that we're bet we're safer somehow if we create a whole narrative of how bad stuff will get it's called catastrophizing and people do it because they believe if we paint really black horrible stories about how much worse things can get we feel that we'll somehow be prepared we won't be caught off guard actually it doesn't make us any more prepared Nobody has yet been able to accurately predict the future, uh, except for Michael Moore. Uh, <laughs> but uh, in general, most of us can't. And even if you do actively, accurately predict how bad things will get, and they, they do get really, really bad, all of the thinking won't help you one bit. Have you ever prepared for a job interview and thought all night about every possible answer you're going to give, and then you go to the job interview, and absolutely nothing that you prepared, you say. Because in the real situations, there's so many different neurotransmitters involved, so much fear, so much other situations going on, that all the preparation amounts to nothing. So you can't prepare for bad times, and actually most of the time, if we reflect on our life, we were caught off guard by bad stuff, we still did okay. So, um, controlled breathing. Sarah Lazar and her Harvard team has showed that when people practice 20 minutes of breathing for eight weeks, the size of the amygdala, which is the fight, flight, freeze, the fear center of the brain, begins to shrink. All human beings have amygdalas that are set far too active for reality. We're still living in brains as if we, you know, probably the last time the amygdala was changed was about 50,000 years ago when we last as a species inbred with other species. And we pretty much have stopped doing that. And so uh, that's kind of the engine of a lot of evolution is species inbreeding. It's not mutations. You might have heard that, but no, but actually species tend to evolve because of uh, breeding with other species. We stopped doing that. A good thing, most of us would argue, but the problem that means is that 
our brains haven't very much evolved to match the current conditions that we live in. We're still living as if death is everywhere and that we are constantly in danger of being eaten on the way home. Mm -hmm. And if you are eaten on the way home, I encourage you to let me know because it would make a fantastic story to read about. No, I'm kidding. Um, controlled breathing will reduce your fear activation and it will pull your attention away from the speculating thoughts that are probably producing a lot of the Net, net, the unnecessary stress that we're feeling. Meta meditation, according to Kearney and Fredrickson, has been shown to significantly reduce the effects of PTSD, which is dissociation uh, and um, uh, uh, hypervigilance. So if you have any feelings of being deeply triggered by childhood experiences, meta meditation, repeating holding your hand on your chest, repeating phrases like, may I be uh, peaceful, may I feel safe, may all beings feel peaceful, may all beings be, feel safe. That has been shown to really be a powerful tool in addressing the uh, triggering of these events. And finally, insight meditation with the direct purpose of integrating and feeling emotions is really deeply essential. Um, Human beings, we have a variety of emotions for a reason. Every single emotion we have has a purpose. There is no such a thing as a, uh, a mistake in emotion in the sense that all emotions have <coughs> their purpose. Grief is the way we process loss. Fear motivates self-protection when we are vulnerable and not connected with other people. Shock buys us time when we can't process new developments. Anger is what allows us to set boundaries to confront injustice and to survive in abusive situations. All of these emotions are necessary to lead not only well-integrated lives, but if we do not integrate and feel all of our emotions then we will not be prepared to meaningfully respond at times where we feel threatened. In our culture, we're all trained by figures of power in our early lives that certain emotions are okay. I love it, honey, when you smile and when you act as if everything's okay in our dysfunctional family. <laughs> I don't like it when you grieve or wail uncontrollably or get angry because that reminds me of all the emotions that I've suppressed to survive as an adult and work. So I will reward you when you smile and I will punish you when you enact any emotion that is uh, positive. Now, many, many parents are good parents and are tolerant and emotionally mirroring of their children and then those children get of course, in school, surrounded by peers or teachers or people who still instruct them that the, there are certain emotions that are good and certain emotions that are bad. To the point, as a culture, when people make extremely important choices in their life and they tell their friends, people instruct them what emotion they should have. I'll give you an example. Suppose Jenny... I hope there's no Jenny here. Uh, but I suppose Jenny is getting married, and she sees her friend, and she says, I'm getting engaged. And all her friends say, what's the first thing they say? You must be so excited. Right? But if Jenny's a human being, she will feel <laughs> terror 
fear, engulfment, a desire to run, <laughs> celebration. Uh, she will feel a wide array of emotions. Emotions are meant to be fluid, to flow, to push us through different responses, to not push us in a single one uniform direction. That's the left hemisphere, the storytelling part of the brain that wants us to just get over everything and wants us just to go back to achieving our goals. So in our practice, we focus on the breath. We practice metta to heal from triggers. And we practice insight to help us integrate and open to all of the emotional responses that are natural rather than pushing, suppressing, uh, uh, not being aware of, in denial, not allowing natural emotions to arise. If we do this, we can approach and be in these experiences from a, a whole, fully integrated, authentic perspective. And I think that's the safest way to live. So I thank you for listening to that. Let's meditate. So let's um, just find a comfortable seated position. Only request or suggestion is uh, try to keep your head from folding over your chest. And then if, it's a, if it feels appropriate for you, close your, your eyes. But if you'd like to uh, keep your eyes open, just look at the ground in front of you. Don't look at other people, don't look around the room. Uh, most of our lives, the mind is overbalanced to try to find a solution for everything externally. And that reinforces the idea that we're not safe, that we have to acquire safety outside of ourselves. And so the, just the closing of eyes and focusing inwards while you're surrounded by safe people is a way of telling yourself that you are not vulnerable right now. So we're going to start with three breaths just to relax the body. So take a nice full in-breath and through the nose lift up the shoulders like you're trying to touch the ears and hold those shoulders up there for a while. Just let them linger and then as we breathe out through the mouth Drop the shoulders like they weigh a ton and slightly pull back the shoulders so that you open up the chest. And then the second breath, pulling in the belly really taut, holding it in there and then breathing out through the mouth. Soften the belly. Nobody's looking. That nice, big, round, soft belly. And then for the third breath, squinching the muscles in the face and any other muscles you like, maybe the buttocks or the fists or the squinching the toes, just squinch a whole bunch of muscles, hold them tight, and then breathe out. Let the muscles in the face and body as much as possible relax. And... Uh, just survey the body and with a compassionate, caring awareness and see if you can in any way make yourself more comfortable at this moment. So, for instance, if clothing is too tight or if your legs are folded awkwardly or if you feel uh, in any way that you could find a more 
comfortable state. So for the first type of meditation we discussed, um, focused awareness on a sensation, you could use the breath. And that simply involves knowing that when you're breathing in or breathing out, you don't have to have only the breath and awareness. So long as you know if you're breathing in or breathing out or pausing in between, you won't or you'll be less inclined, I should say, to climb into thoughts and representational images of the world in your mind and get caught up in the inner movies that we create. You don't have to push those away. Just set an intention to know when I'm breathing in or know when I'm breathing out. At first, it might be more comfortable to count the in-breath and out-breath, one on the in, two on the out, three on the in, four on the out-breath. When you get to five, count down, four on the out-breath, three on the in, two on the out. So you're counting from one to five and back down. Many people will not like working with the breath for various associations, and so that's fine. You can use the sounds of the room you could use contact sensations, just feeling the body swaying, feeling the sensations of weight on the cushion, clothes on the skin. You could even use the lights flickering behind closed eyelids or any combination of actual sensed experience just to keep you in the present moment and the purpose of this is just to, one, learn to focus awareness. The focused mind feels more peaceful, feels less unsettled, feels less vulnerable, and is less attracted to stress-inducing thoughts. If at any time you find that you've been pulled into thoughts, don't add any criticism or judgment, just gently, patiently bring awareness back to your present time anchor, the breath or sounds or any other sensations. And just feel good that you're developing awareness.
So at this point, you can just allow the anchor you've been working with to remain in awareness, but bring your attention now to a image that you create in the mind of either yourself or at a time in your life where you felt peaceful or to a figure you associate with care, an individual that you associate with kindness, with compassion, with tolerance and love and acceptance. We'd like you can hold your hand to your heart if that feels safe or appropriate. Just find a simple set of phrases setting an intention for peace and safety. It could be, may I live with ease, may I feel safe and loved, may all beings live with ease, may all beings feel safe and loved, or I love you, keep going, (coughs) or may all beings know true peace, may I know true peace. Those don't have to be the words. Any words that are nurturing and soothing for you, that have meaning for you. See if you can drop the words from your head into your heart, into the body. What would that feel like if the body contains so many of the emotional messages and the mind could help soothe that inner child, how would it address those feelings? How would it drop these very simple nurturing, caring, I love you, keep going, may I feel safe, may I feel loved, may I feel connected. And just repeat whatever your phrases are as often as you need to keep other thoughts from intruding and pulling you away.
So letting the image of yourself or the figure you associate with security and peace to dissolve for a moment, we'll bring it back at the end. But for now, let's bring up quite a different image. In fact, an image as antithetically different as you could possibly imagine. Bring up an image of something that you associate with the last week or any recent event that made you feel unsafe, that made you feel vulnerable, that made you feel the presence of aggression. It could, of course, very easily be an image of the president-elect or any other resonant image or the news when you heard it. And just instead of turning it into a story or trying to make sense of it, as the mind so often tries to do to feel safe, instead let's seek safety by just feeling what needs to be felt. How does it feel? What is it? like for the emotional mind to have to have this person, this figure, this aggression, this violence, this bullying. Be ratified by so many. What does this feel like? What is it? What needs our attention? Don't judge. There's no right emotion. It could be just as appropriate to feel blended feelings of fear, sad, angry. Some people might find it funny. We're just carving out space in our lives to create a safe environment, a tolerant mental environment for all emotions that need to be felt to have their time. So finally, replace the triggering image with a safe image without pushing away any of the feelings. An image of a caring, nurturing, soothing figure 
yourself or another being <clears throat> that you associate with care and just from this figured ask the feelings in your body anything that's arisen ask how can I make you feel safe how can I take care of you what can I do to make you feel stronger more protected how can I meet your needs what do you need to see if you can create in your mind a self-soothing, caring, parenting voice that wants you, wants all of your emotions, accepts all of you and all of your emotions and simply wants to find a way to make you feel safe. So we're going to begin the transition and just reminding ourselves that we should cherish our practice. It's blameless. It causes no harm to any other being. It's unconditionally available. And there's countless research that documents its efficacy, yet it doesn't cause any harm. See if you can bring with you into the rest of your life awareness of your feelings and body and also see if you can at different times throughout the rest of your life cultivate that voice of self-care, unconditional self-care.